This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Paganampake Pagan, and on the show today, I decided that it would be a good time to take another look at America, in particular, Obama's America. With everything that's going on over there in that country, I figured that now was a good time to call up Jonathan Shait. He is the author of the book Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Created Legacy That Will Prevail. I figured that now is a time, a good time, for a reminder of the things that Barack Obama tried to do and successfully accomplished during his time in office. Uh, so, yes, uh, before, I, before I start, though, if I could get you very quickly just to introduce yourself and what you do. Hello, my name is and the like. Hello, my name is Jonathan Chait. I'm a political columnist for New York Magazine. I work from Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of uh, Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Created a Legacy That Will Prevail. I was looking online uh, and just reading reviews of your book as well and the stark contrast between say the new york times and the national review of your book is i think symbolic of just how divided america is right now that's right and that's what you just said is a big part of the argument of my book that obama's legacy is much broader and much deeper than people understand so the conclusion that people jump to after the election that trump would easily and quickly undo it is mostly wrong. Um, He will push back and he will have some success, but much less than people believe and predict. Um, And much more of Obama's achievements will be left standing when Trump is finished. Uh, And the National Review editorial is almost an extreme, simplistic example of the assumption I think I take apart pretty well in the book. It simply assumed, because this, this assumption is so widely shared in the conservative movement of the Republican Party, that Trump would wipe everything away. It didn't even bother engaging with the arguments in the book. It didn't really consider any of the evidence. But I think the easy certainty that many conservatives had has already started to fall away. It's clear how hard it will be for him to do, undo many of these programs, beginning with Obamacare, which they believed, I think, would have been repealed by now. I think if you ask most Republicans um, the day after the election, they would have guessed that by now... Um, repeal would have been signed into law, but they are farther away from repealing this law now than they were after the election. I loved your book, and I love the arguments you made, because for the longest time, I too, I'm that guy in the room that's shouting people down whenever they make those ridiculously lazy statements about the Obama presidency, and it's nice to have it all in one place. But the fake news post-truth rhetoric it seems to have mm-hmm. taken such hold that even those who you think are in the know often resort to those arguments. Well, I think that's right. And that's a big part of the audience I had in mind for this book. I think a lot of people in the United States, even people who like and approve of Barack Obama, will say something like, he tried to do good things and it's not his fault that he'd failed because the Republicans blocked him. Um, And I want to make the case that, no, he actually did most of what he set out to do. He didn't do everything, and the Republicans did block him, and he spent a lot of time talking about how much the Republicans blocked him. But there really is a failure to appreciate how much he actually did accomplish in office. And part of what the the book tries to explain is why. I felt a book that was just a list of accomplishments would be boring, be boring to read and boring to write, and I didn't want to do it. So I didn't 
just devote that much of the time to listing the accomplishments. I wanted to explain what he did, how he did it, and why it was that so many people failed to understand what he did. And, and, and many of these policies, for idiosyncratic reasons, if you if you go into the story and, and see how they passed, you can see why people came away with the conclusion that nothing much happened and why these successes got much less attention than episodes that seemed like failure at the time, but really sort of were passing moments without much significance. History is often a very slow judge of these things. But do you think, given the current circumstances, given given Trump and given where the Republican Party is right now, do you think history is going to look look upon Obama a lot more kinder a lot sooner? I think it absolutely will. Um, and I think Trump will contribute to that argument in some ways. Um, one way, I think, is that one of the things I try to show in this book is that throughout Obama's presidency, the Republican Party was unwilling and even unable to negotiate with it the way normal party, inter-party negotiation has happened in the United States. And a lot of um, centrist, a lot of moderate people, a lot of people who were trying to have an open mind gave a good share of the blame for this for Obama. But I think Trump shows that the Republican Party had reached a certain state where negotiation was not really possible, where facts could not be reasoned with, where it was really possessed with a rage that was rooted in um, identity, um, nostalgia, fear, um, some very base emotions that couldn't be surmounted even with uh, the, the most skillful overtures in negotiation. So I think really Trump proves a point about what kind of Republican Party Obama had to do. And also, I think the Trump win and the tremendous lashback towards the Democrats and the Obama presidency in a way proves exactly how much he accomplished, because it seems to have rankled them so much more. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, there's a there's an anger toward Obama that's been simmering for eight years in the Republican base. Uh, but I think we've begun to see even more clearly now how little of it had to do with policy, um, how little Republicans actually understood what Obama did and what and what what his policies actually contained. It, part of it was because, like you said, they've developed their own sources of news and information or, or pseudo information um, that have uh, sealed them off from any objective accounting of, of of what politics and policy is really doing. Um, so it's it. Obama has said that basically he can't reach a lot of those voters because there's just no news sources that are going to transmit what he's done to them. That the news sources that Republican voters get are controlled by the Republican Party, and and they're committed to a policy of of total opposition to Obama. And I think one of the interesting things about Obama's character, um, I was in I was in Grand Park when he won in 2008, and I was covering the elections for a Malaysian newspaper. And you're absolutely right about the scope of both those speeches, his winning speech and then his inauguration address two months later. And the kind of scale, um, it feels like when you're in office and when you suddenly start getting all of those briefings after you become president-elect, you might think to scale down mm -hmm. a little bit because of the fear of the office can be overwhelming. But he seemed to have, he seemed to have ramped things up. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what I wanted, the case I want to make to people 
is, look, I'm not just setting the bar low and saying, oh, look, he made it over this low bar. I'm not defining success in my terms so it's easy to see that he's succeeded. I'm saying that Obama, at the beginning of his presidency, made a series of high-profile speeches laying out his goals, his inauguration speech, and he made an early speech to Congress. And everyone, friend and foe, said this is a hugely ambitious agenda. No one disputed that he was trying to do a lot of big things. And it's also very clear that he did all of those things. He completely or almost completely accomplished all those big goals he set out. But it was the opponents who redefined the terms. So then, after it became impossible to deny that he'd done the things he set out to do, simply um, said, well, he hasn't done very much. He's... And, and the reason why people on the right were forced to retreat to that argument is because they made these apocalyptic predictions on the basis of their conservative ideology. These kinds of expansions of government would destroy the free market, destroy freedom, destroy prosperity. The country would never be the same. Um, we, it would be a, we would lay waste to the American economy as we know it. Um, and when those didn't happen, they had to say that, well, it wasn't really socialism after all. It was just, he just didn't do very much because that was the only way to, to preserve the sanctity of their belief system. The left is a little more interesting. And the argument I make with the left is that liberals have a congenital tendency toward disappointment. Um, and that if you <laughs> go back and look, as I do, liberals have responded to every Democratic presidency in the entire New Deal era, from Roosevelt through Obama, the exact same way. Same complaints. They're half-hearted. They've compromised. They've refused to stand up for our values. They're in the pocket of big business, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exact same complaints about every single president. So um, that this, the, this reaction is more about liberals and liberals' inability to be happy than it is about Obama. I, I think we'll start with the very beginning, which is, of course, Tim Geithner's statement of preventing the next Great Depression. This was not something he campaigned on because the economy hadn't gone into a financial crisis until very, very late in the campaign. But there were three large independent elements of the economic rescue plan. Um, not the only ones, but the main ones. The first one was a fiscal stimulus, which was historically large, larger than anything Roosevelt had ever done, um, and much larger than anybody envisioned before the, before he took office, an $800 billion stimulus. Um, there was a bank reorganization plan, a stress test to basically um, restore confidence in the financial sector and allow lending to resume. Um, and then there was a, a bailout of the auto industry, which because the auto industry couldn't borrow money because the financial markets had frozen up, the, the two of the three automakers were going to go under and their suppliers, all the firms that gave them parts, um, we're going to go under as well. And this was going to cause a ripple effect that was going to bring down um, the whole economy of the Midwest. So all three of these things he did um, against the total opposition of the Republican Party um, and received enormous criticism for at the time. But I think I tried to show the evidence. I, by this point, it's very clear that all three of them worked extremely well. And if he had listened to the advice of the critics, it would have been an absolute disaster for the country. But they all worked. And of course, that wasn't enough because you had sustained job growth and unprecedented job growth for eight years. You did. Um, he had the unfortunate situation very much unlike Roosevelt. Roosevelt took office three and a half years after the Great Depression had begun. So the country had completely bottomed out. 
Um, and so that he so that the fall was much, much deeper than it was under Obama, because Obama prevented the worst of the damage. He prevented another Great Depression. Unemployment never reached anything like the heights it got in the 1930s before Roosevelt took office. And Roosevelt was able to get quick bounce back growth um, from that depth. Obama took office as the economy was going off the cliff so he could prevent another Great Depression, but he couldn't prevent things from getting worse before they got better. And he and it was still a long, slow climb. And as I say in the book, they could have done more to make the climb faster. Um, there was enormous opposition to doing that, though. The political system became almost dysfunctional, and 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 all the elites in both parties were fleeing in the opposite direction of reason. Um, they were all terrified of deficits when they should have been terrified of unemployment. Um, but in the face of that, they still, nonetheless, they they what I, what I think I can show is that they put together a more effective response than any other country in the world that was affected by the financial crisis. So let's talk about the environment. And I, I found this particularly fascinating, if only because um, President Obama, he didn't approach this from an American policy point of view alone. He made it uh, he became somewhat of a global spokesperson, and I think that was an interesting mm-hmm. strategy on his part. Well, when he began trying to change American policy on climate, the main argument that the Republican opposition made in the United States was that it doesn't matter what we do because China and India are going to continue to emit more carbon dioxide. So any changes we make will be swamped by the increases coming from those those countries. And so we're simply suckers. For, we're hurting ourselves for no good reason. So I think you recognized all along that American and green energy reforms had to be leveraged diplomatically into global agreements that could bring everyone together. That the criticism would be true if it couldn't become the springboard for effective international action. But it was the springboard. So in 2014, they made a, a bilateral agreement with China. And this this pact between the, the biggest, the two biggest emitters in the world and the biggest developing country and the biggest developed country in, in, in the world uh, set the stage for the Paris Agreement. So um, the emissions cuts in the United States turned out to have um, cascading effects that were pretty important, pretty dramatic on a global scale. I think probably the most, uh, I don't like the word controversial, but I guess contentious chapter in your book is uh, about democracy and human rights and stanching a bleeding world in that mm-hmm. I guess a lot of people may make arguments uh, about drone attacks and um, escalations and even uh, curbing freedom of the press. So why do you mm-hmm. believe that um, Obama's achievements when it comes to democracy and human rights is something to be lauded? So the book is an argument. The book has a point of view. Uh, and the book is not a piece of propaganda, so it's not it's not a lawyerly case where I simply make the best of everything and ignore all the bad. Um, in every case, I try to acknowledge almost every chapter. I point out things that he's done wrong or could have done better. Um, mo- there's more of that in the foreign policy chapter than anywhere else because I don't think his record uh, is transformative on foreign policy the way it is at the best. Policy. I think his record on foreign policy is more of that of a typical American president. Um, not a great, um, unusually great president like he is on domestic policy. Um, nonetheless, I, I think people have to recognize that he really, for the most part, followed 
the pattern he 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 promised in his campaign. He didn't promise to be a pacifist. He didn't promise to withdraw the world, the United States from all conflict, to end American um, leadership or even military leadership or to stop the war on terrorism. He ran on a stronger, more forceful campaign to fight al-Qaeda. He basically argued for shifting resources away from the Iraq war and toward a fight against al-Qaeda. He promised during the campaign that he would go into Pakistan to to attack al-Qaeda and capture bin Laden if that's what it took. And that's what he did. So he he did say he would eliminate torture, and he did. So I think, broadly speaking, he was the person that he campaigned as. Now, I think a lot of people who supported him on domestic policy wanted a different kind of policy on on a different kind of foreign policy. Some of those people were much more liberal than him on foreign policy and and didn't want drone strikes, didn't want continued warfare um, against al-Qaeda in in the Middle East. But but that is what he ran on. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about on his list of achievements was race relations in America. It seems, uh, at least from the outside looking in, it seems like it's just just a little worse for wear. Then again, that could be that we live in a time where a lot more is coming to the surface. I mean, you've got a great example in your introduction in which you talk about two schoolboys fighting and how the interpretation of that singular moment took on a different form in divided America. Right. There was an episode in Obama's first year when there was a fight between two schoolboys. One or one side was white and one side was black. I don't remember how many were involved, but um, conservatives hysterically interpreted that as this is Obama's America, where where black boys are beating up on white boys. Um, And they attributed this this thing that was going on forever, um, fighting among boys um, to, 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 to Obama because he had become a symbol of their racialized fears and their, and their fears of change and their anger and, in many cases, their hate. Um, and I think Obama had had trouble initially getting, getting his hands on this problem. Um, but I think he did get his hands on it pretty well. And I think he managed to articulate a vision and an ideal of the United States that was different than any president had done before, but very powerful, a, a vision where the struggle for racial justice was not just a part of the American story, but the heart of the American story. The ultimate example of what this country was about was the fight against slavery and the fight against segregation and the fight to perfect the union. Um, So I really think that Obama as an intellectual, as a writer and as a thinker may have left his imprint on the American idea in a very profound way here. Um, and I think even though it's gone in a very different direction under Trump, if you could see who supports Trump, which is the disproportionately old, as opposed to who doesn't support him, which is the, the young. Um, and if you could see the demographic direction that this country is headed, uh, I strongly believe that Obama's vision is the one that's going to prevail over the long run. And of course, all of these things include his work on gay rights, which were huge achievements, and also, you know, raising the level of discourse and oratory. It's, uh, there was this great, I remember this episode of The West Wing when Bartlett goes off on this rant about the power of words, and it seemed like something that was symbolized in Obama's presidency. 
you know, there there's power to words, but there are also limits to words. I think that was a thing that we realized as well, that he was dealing with a Republican Party that had a hold on its share of the country. Um, they couldn't be budged by reason, by logic, by oratory, by by anything. But there there is, like you say, some kind of a lasting power. And I, I do think he is a he is a great writer. Um, he's one of the most literate men to ever hold this office. So I do think a lot of his thinking, his ability to articulate his ideals will give his his ideas um, power and endurance in more than most presidents because he was so so um, so articulate, so so brilliant in his in his in his way to, to uh, formulating his ideas. Jonathan, one last thing. I, uh, there's that common misperception that a big third rail in American politics is Social Security, but it feels like the one place Obama fell short was gun laws and gun control. And that seems to be mm-hmm. something of a third rail in American politics these days, doesn't it? It's, it's been that way for a dozen years or more. Um, after the 2004 election, when Democrats could not be George W. Bush, um, one of the things they concluded was that gun rights were a major reason why the Democratic Party wasn't winning in rural areas and small town, small town white voters. And they pretty much gave up on advocating for gun rights. Um, and as much of a policy failure has, that has been, I think politically that was probably the right decision. So I don't think that changed under Obama. I think you had more gun massacres, but just more realization of the political futility of doing anything. Because the simple fact is there are just more people who care about protecting gun rights at any cost than there are people who want to do anything to limit them. Jonathan, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I've been speaking today to author and journalist Jonathan Chait. His book is called Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Created a Legacy That Will Prevail. It is a wonderfully nuanced read that goes well beyond the simplistic statements we are exposed to on a daily basis, 280 characters at a time. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.